0: Open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. We're going to finish chapter 12. Last week we left off at verse 15, and we saw in those verses that bitterness was detrimental to holiness, that it could defile us and others, and that we were to make every effort to live peaceably with all men. We talked about not allowing sin to have that dominion over us or or putting away every weight and sin that easily entangles us. Uh, We talked about that sin not being what we tend to go towards uh, as far as, you know, vices, you know, drunkenness, you know, fornication. Um, it, it's inclusive of that, but it's actually more focused on lack of faith. It's lack of trust in God. And the sin that is talking about there is just having that doubt instead of having a life of faith that was the focus of chapter 11. And how that unfaithfulness or lack of faith is a sin before God, um, and it's a, a important one to recognize because the entire book of Hebrews has been talking about faith in the better sacrifice, Jesus, faith in the better high priest Jesus, faith in one who is better than the angels, who one who is better than the law, better than all these things. we put our trust in Jesus. And if you do not have faith in Jesus, you're lost. And these Hebrew Christians have been battling, going back to their traditions, back to the rituals, back to the sacrifices, back to the things that they were familiar with. And the writer here is really coming down heavy, and he's going to come down heavier still in these final verses to try and bring home the point that you can't go backwards you can't go to what is less you need to move forward in your faith if it's not of faith it is sin and so we saw that we're to live lives that are holy to not allow bitterness to take root and to grow within us to cause trouble that would defile us and the picture of bitterness you might see clearly in the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son? The prodigal went and took his inheritance, his, his half of the inheritance, and he squandered it, You know, lived it on, on just wildlife prostitutes and, and doing all kinds of debauchery and had nothing left. He came back home and the father gladly received him and the older brother said, hey, that's not fair. What about me? There was bitterness that God showed mercy on this brother who was defiled. Well, that idea of bitterness can take root in any of us. And in these Hebrew Christians, it could take root in the fact that, you know, here we have been following the traditions of God throughout the years. We have a a better place in the kingdom of God than those who haven't been obedient. We know more. We are higher in that hierarchy or in prestige having that idea of comparison is a dangerous, dangerous thing. And so, the idea of bitterness is one where the older brother was bitter against the prodigal son, and he continues here with another brother example that is a little bit different and deals with something similar, but now it kind of what generates even further. In verse 16, it says, see that no one is sexually immoral or Is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit his this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought for it, sought the blessing with tears. And so now here is an example of of Esau, but notice first in verse 16, he says, see that no one, who is he talking to? Who is this no one? He's talking to believers. When he says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral. We know he's not talking to those who are in the world. See to it that they're not sexually How do you see to it that the world is not sexually immoral? Anyone got a, a way of doing that? What, what are gonna, I mean, you can't legislate against it. How are you going to do that? In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, Paul writes, I have written you in my letter not to be associated with sexually immoral people. Here we go again. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters, in that case, you would have to leave this world. So Paul is saying, no, I'm not talking about those people who don't have faith. I'm talking about those people who are a part of your group, who are a part of the church, who are calling themselves believers. See to it that none of them are sexually immoral. Or is godless like Esau? And it's interesting because here the sexual immorality is connected to godlessness. Or it might say profane in some of your translations, but basically it means godless. And I was thinking, how does sexually immoral and godless go together? Because he, he uses them together and then he uses Esau. And I'm trying to remember, was Esau sexually immoral? It doesn't really talk a whole lot about that. But the whole idea here is that when we neglect holiness, we will begin to despise what is holy and sell it cheaply for self-gratification. And the idea is the things of God will mean little, but the things of the flesh will mean much. And that's godless. We're not aware of God, we're not influenced by, by God, we're influenced by our desires, our cravings. And the sexual craving and desire is a powerful one that causes a lot of damage. It's something that's always been problematic and prevalent in our societies. Uh, It's never really changed. It's never gone away. It's in the most um, strict, you know, Environments. I mean, whether it's the Taliban, you know, ruling, there's still adultery that takes place in those kinds of, you know, just really uh, intense dictatorship or oppressive, you know, governments. You don't stop people's sexual immorality. It's something that is a part of their natural cravings. And if they're without influence by God, they're going to pursue what they want naturally. And so the idea of godless and sexual immoral is like you don't care about what God's desires are, you care about what your own desires are. And if we neglect holiness, that's what's going to happen. When people want to use God instead of being used by God, when they they turn the church into a tool for personal advantage, then they're dangerously on the grounds of Esau, grounds that will surrender spiritual values for material ones. And in the church, that's not uncommon. It happens in the church. Some places, gosh, youth ministry can be the worst place to send your kids sometimes. It's true. In the youth ministry, there's all kinds of depravity going on. The kids are, are, you know, just having relationships with each other that aren't healthy. Just because it's the church doesn't mean it's good you get a bunch of teenagers together, you're going to have issues. And so we have to guard ourselves against this and recognize that what it is, is neglecting spiritual values and raising carnal ones instead. And it's not just sexual issues, godlessness, greed. Becoming greedy. How many times have we seen in the news that pastors have embezzled money? There was not too long ago a pastor locally that had embezzled thousands of dollars from a local church. And this was someone who was one of you know the key people. What happened? He became godless. Didn't care about God, cared about gratification. And... Esau is the comparison here, and what a great comparison Esau is, because Esau gave up his birthright for food. He gave up his inheritance to be the firstborn and receive the blessing and be the one over the family just because he was hungry. And so what would satisfy him immediately but temporarily was his focus. And we're not to be like that, where we go for what is immediate gratification and also temporary gratification. The morsel of meat will soon be gone, but the consequence of the choice isn't. And the consequences are a part of what is our warning here in verse 17. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. There are some consequences that you cannot reverse. There are some things that will not change. And you have to deal with those consequences. Now, some of them are not salvation related. In other words, some consequences you might endure and it might be a result of sin, but it doesn't mean you've lost salvation or the grace of God. If someone gets pregnant, you know, out of wedlock, guess what? You're you're having the baby. You can't, oh God, take the baby away. It's one of those consequences of the sin that you did. Now, if you were in wedlock, it's not a sin. The baby's coming. There's no such thing as a little bit pregnant. It's a consequence. There are people who have used drugs or abused drugs and it's affected their minds, it's affected their bodies, or have gotten in accidents because of drinking and have been paralyzed. There are consequences, and some of those never get reversed. And it doesn't matter if you cry. It doesn't matter if you labor. The consequences are there. And then there are some consequences that have eternal ramifications. There are some consequences where if you reject the Lord and his desires and live a life that is self-focused and to satisfy the temporary longings, once you die, there is no turning back. There is no second chance. And we know the story that Jesus talks about Lazarus and the rich man how Lazarus, who is the poor beggar, goes and is comforted at Abraham's bosom. But the rich man goes and is tormented in that place of fire. And he says, just dip someone's finger in cool water and place it on my tongue that I could be just quenched from this agony. If I came back, I could warn someone. There's no coming back. Once we die, there is the judgment. And so the warning here is rather rough. It's rather harsh, and it's meant to be. It's meant to be so that we would understand that no one includes us, that we can become people who are sexually immoral or godless, even though we call ourselves or name ourselves among Christ, that that is something that we are in danger of if we are like Esau and seeking gratification temporarily instead of being God-minded and seeking to please him and that which is eternal. We still have that to wrestle with. We still have that and recognize and remember the consequences of Esau. There was nothing he could do. Even though he cried, and how many times have we cried over the things that we have done, (laughs) and there's no getting around it, It's, it's damaged doesn't mean God isn't at work. It doesn't mean God can't work things out still for a good in your life. But there is the scar. There is the wound. You do reap what you sow. And sometimes when you sow those things, you reap the consequences of them. God still can forgive. God still can deliver. But you walk with a limp after that because of whatever maybe you've been through. And so we have to be careful of these things. It's a warning for us. And then he gives these two contrasts. In verses 18 through 21, he says what we have not. And then in verses 22 through the end, it tells us what we have come to. And the difference is what he's been trying to bring about all along, the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. And now he's really trying to make his point. He's trying to put an exclamation on all of the things that he said on how important these things are. In verse 18, it says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it, begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. And now he's saying as frightening as this event was that took place back in Exodus at Mount Sinai, he's saying as the gloom, the darkness, the thunder, and the voice and all those things, as much as that was frightening, that was only a preparation for what is to come. And the point is here to to really shake us to the seriousness, to be sober about what he's talking about here. Do you remember that picture? The people were terrified. They didn't want to get near the mountain. They didn't want God to speak anymore because it was just too much for them to bear. I was talking to my son yesterday and he was telling me about a thunderstorm that took place there in North Carolina. And he was in the hangar where they work on the aircraft that he works on there. And he said that this lightning flashed right outside of them. He said it blinded everyone. It flashed and they just couldn't see a thing. And then when the thunder hit, it just shook everything. And he said the reaction to all the guys are like, oh my gosh. And I think one of the guys said, man, I believe now or something. It was <laughs> kind of like, you know, I, I repent. It was so overwhelming that it, it just shook them to fear like oh my gosh this is too powerful for me I I remember earlier when I was younger my brother and I he was probably about eighteen or no he was younger than that um, anyway we were sitting on on the front steps over there was an overhang and it was pouring and there was thunder and the same thing happened he was sitting there smoking some cigarettes you know he's acting cool and. All of a sudden this lightning flashed, bam, and it just shook the house. And I remember him taking his cigarettes and he threw them and he goes, I don't smoke anymore. he <laughs> was like, oh man, it just scared him. It was too frightening for him. That awakening. And the Mount Sinai was one of those things. The place shook, God spoke, and it terrified them. Moses was afraid and they were just like, don't go near the mountain. And the writer of Hebrews is telling us, as frightening as that was, it was preparation for the way of Christ. It was announcing what was coming. Announcing that even though that was temporary and brought strong warning, there was something deeper that was bringing even a deeper warning still. If that was the shadow, what is the genuine? And you see, understanding the holiness of God is something that escapes us. It's something that when we do have an awareness of it, it brings a holy fear. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The idea of God is so holy, I cannot stand in His presence at all. As I am. is overwhelming. And causes us, or should cause us, to tremble. And this picture on Mount Sinai caused them to tremble. But that was just a shadow. That was just preparing a way. That was a trumpet blast announcing the proclamation of the king who was coming. And if that was terrifying, what is it going to be? And so he comes to this crescendo now in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirit of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. They came to a mountain, you come to God. The mountain where God gave the law, you come to the mountain of God. And he gives this testimony, and this is supposed to open our eyes to what we are partakers of. What our inheritance is, the magnitude of what it is we belong to. And if that was terrifying, what is this? What is it to be? How should it affect us? Well, it should get rid of sexual immorality and godlessness. It should shake us. It should get rid of bitterness. It should get rid of uh, doubt. It should get rid of that lack of faith. It should bring us to a place of holy awareness to God and all that surrounds us. And these things, they're just labeled on top of each other. The heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, thousands upon thousands of the firstborn, or thousands of angels, joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, you have come to God, the judge of all men to the spirits of righteous men made perfect to Jesus. The last one he comes to is to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and of the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word. We just sang about that. Speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And what he means by the blood of Abel is not Abel's blood that was spilled. It was the sacrifice that Abel made. Abel made a sacrifice by faith told us about that in chapter 11, verse 4, that that offering by faith was received by God. Well, if Abel's offering by faith was received by God, this one speaks a better word. What is it? It's Jesus himself. It speaks a better word that we can take it and hold on to that. Now, this is something that we come to but you come to the mounts of God. Now, you Hebrew Christians who want to identify yourselves with Moses and the law given by angels, with the priesthood that was handed down to Aaron, with the covenant that God gave, you want to hold on to that. But this speaks a better word as awesome as that was, as useful as that was, it compares nothing to what you now have. And it's to open their eyes and their awareness of, oh my gosh, what has been done for me? What is the responsibility that I now have being given this covenant through Jesus. And, and I wonder, I, I've been reading a number of books and, and I'm in the middle of this one book. It's called um, In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. And it's a great book by Matt Batterson. It's taken from 2 uh, Samuel where Benaniah chased a lion into a pit and s- slew that lion and later on became the chief of Israel's army. And it talks about being a lion chaser. You know, not being someone who sees a lion goes, ah, you know, and runs away. But having that courage to say, you know what, I'm going to go get that lion. And that moment that would normally cause us to, to shrink back and say, you know, it, it would be the prudent thing to do to run away from that lion, this man chose instead to run towards the lion. And the idea is God has something for those who will step into what he has for them. Like Ben and I, who pursued this lion. Like us. If we will pursue what God has for us. And if God be for us, who can be against us? And if he gave his son for us? How much will he not freely give us all things? And what are we to do with Jesus' words, the gates of hell shall not prevail? See, gates are defensive. The church prevailing is knocking them over. But so many times we think the gates of hell will not prevail. Okay, put the gates of hell out there and we're going to gate ourselves in and try and live a protected life. When really, we are to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. When really, we are to be on the offensive. That faith in itself is on the offense. And if we saw ourselves in this light, that we have come to this place, to the mountain of God, heavenly Jerusalem, the living God, where there's thousands and thousands of angels in a joyful assembly, the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven, if we would recognize that this is us, this is what we're a part of, I wonder if we'd be so timid. I wonder if we'd be so frightened. I wonder if we would worry so much. I wonder if we wouldn't recognize what is and belongs to us and who God is. I wonder if faith wouldn't just spring within us and we would understand and take this good news and allow it to conquer the world. How could the disciples do what they did unless they believed this? And the challenge is now for us, just like it was for those Hebrew Christians, to recognize where we stand, those of us who believe in Jesus Christ. Because it comes down to Him. It comes down to Jesus Christ, the mediator of a new covenant, the covenant we belong to, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That God received that sacrifice, how much more will he receive us in Jesus Christ and what he has done? And so, this is the permanent order of God's kingdom. This is what God has ordained for us. This is where we are to live, where we are to stand, what we are to pursue. Verse 25, he says, see to it, that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we? If we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has prophesied, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens." And that's in Haggai 2.6 that he talks about that. Verse 27, the words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Do not refuse these better things. See to it that you do not refuse him. Who? Jesus Christ, the better things. And remember where we're talking, who we're talking to, the Hebrew Christians. Don't refuse Jesus you refuse him, you're in dangerous ground. I mean, God shook and that shook the earth, but now he's saying he's going to shake not only the earth, but the heavens as well. He is going to shake more than that. And, And see, the idea is they need to stop their foolishness. You guys, it's time to grow up. It's time to stop refusing Jesus. Time to stop trying to to hold on to things less than Jesus, you need to stop this foolishness. You need to stop refusing him. And how does that play out to us? Again, we can settle for a religion instead of the relationship. We can settle for something less than Jesus as well. And there are many people who are in, under the umbrella of Christianity who do not have a relationship with the living God who go to church, who do the things that they do at church. Maybe they're deacons, maybe they're elders, maybe they're involved, maybe they're pastors, maybe they're a part of the worship ministry, and they do and go through the motions, but they're not connected to the living God. They are just playing the part. They are acting it out and not involved with it, committed to it wholeheartedly. And the same thing would be true for them. They need to stop that foolishness what things are going to be shaken when when God shakes to see what's real and what's genuine and what's going to fall off of our lives? Well, the pride, the things that he's talked about, the bitterness and those things that we've held on to that really didn't mean anything. The sexual immorality, the the. Faith in the wrong things. All those things are going to be put to the test. Paul talks about it as going through the fire and all that's wood, hay, or stubble is going to be burned up and only that which is of value will remain. And here the same thing. He's going to shake and whatever isn't part of the, the core is going to fall off. If you shake those things and everything that's dust or whatever falls to the side, only what's a part of Christ will remain. And you see, that's what will remain. God, Christ, the church, holiness, love, those won't be shaken. And those who utilize them and are a part of them, who are connected to them, will remain as well. If we are connected to Christ, if we are connected to His love, if we are connected to His church, if we are connected to His holiness, then when things really shake, we will remain. And we need to strengthen those things that do remain, and not strengthen the things that don't. Not put so much stock in things that aren't important, but put stock in the things that are. Now, what that means and how that plays out in our lives, what do you have faith in? Do you have faith in your job? Do you have faith in your husband, your wife? Do you have faith in your education? Do you have faith in your uh, bank account, all those things can be shaken. None of those things will remain. People you love may may die, may be sooner, might be later. Your bank account, it can di- diminish quickly. Your job it can be lost. Heck, whole countries go under. What do you do when a nation goes under and you've had stock in it? <laughs> you know? Oh dear. What will remain? You see, none of those things are wrong. It's not wrong to have a wife, not wrong to have a husband, not wrong to have a savings account, good job. Not wrong to have any of those things. But is your faith in those things? For your life, how long do you see those things that last will last? See, there is something that lasts longer than that. What does it profit if we gain the whole world but we lose our soul? There is something that we need to invest in and strengthen that is eternal. There is a relationship with God that the writer here of Hebrews is trying to connect us to that we need to invest ourselves in. Allowing God to influence our lives and the things that we do. One of the things or a number of the things that this book was talking about that I'm reading, is people who had successful careers and God spoke into their lives and said, I want you to do this, and it just seemed stupid. Why would you do that? You've got a good career. Well, I feel like God is asking me to step into this and to, to involve myself with this. One was to do a work in Africa, and he was a successful lawyer. And it talked about how he took this step and said, well, I'm going to take some time away from my law firm and I'm going to go work with this camera crew of this organization that he didn't know about just because he felt God was pushing him in that direction. He ended up meeting the ambassador to this nation and, and just influencing so many people. Why? Because he did what was foolish, but what he felt God told him to do Those are the things that we have to be willing to invest in. Those are the things that remain. You see, when he stands before God one day, God isn't going to say, Wow, you were a very successful lawyer. Good job. Good job. Wow, you had a lot of money in your bank account. Good job. That's great. But God will be able to look at him and say, Wow, I asked you to do this and you did it. Good job well done you involved yourself with things that I gave to you, good job and those things could be anything from taking time and praying for your children to investing money in a mission field or work of God or to going on a work in a mission field or committing yourself to do a kids club. It, it could be a number of things. When God wants us to invest in things that are a part of him, connected to his grace, connected to his love, connected to what he is at work in, those things will remain. And we need to rec- recognize those things because when everything is shaken, those things will remain. The created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. And so we need to invest our lives in things that are eternal and recognize what those things are. And wouldn't you just love a list of what those things are? I mean, that's what you're looking for, aren't you? You want me to give you a list? And I'm not going to. Because I don't have it. And my list may be different than your list. You know, there there are things that I have done and I look back, you know, the years back and I said, I took this step and it might have been you know, uh, economically difficult step to take. But, God, did I take that step for you? Things that I invested in with my children. God, you know, was that a step I, I took for myself or a step towards you? And the things in my list, you know, as I review them, I can look back and say, wow, those things, are, those things I, I see your hand in God. These things, not so much. And we all have to kind of review our lives and those lists that we have, those things that will remain. And that's for you to seek God and to find out what those things are. Verse 28, he says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. This is the conclusion of who our God is and how powerful and how awesome he is and how fearful this holy fear should shake our lives. We are to receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be thankful And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Now, what amazes me about God being a consuming fire is that I am drawn to him still. Like a moth to the flame, I am drawn to this God who is frightening. And you see, this is the amazing thing. That's why the psalmist can say, your love, O Lord, is better than life. Even though you are awesome, fearful, terrifying, I find myself being drawn to you. Even though you are a consuming fire, I find myself a part of your kingdom And that's who we worship. That's who we are thankful for. It is the love of God that leads us to this repentance. It is the goodness of God that draws us near, even though he is terrifying in his holiness. And and this paradox of God being just awe, frightening like a thunder clap that just makes us shrink back and he is greater than that still, I find myself wanting more and more of him and I'm thankful for him and I recognize what he's done for me and now I am being drawn into his holiness. And you see, this is amazing to me that the holiness of God that is terrifying, is calling me. And I am wanting to answer that call. I'm wanting to be like God, even though what He is and who He is terrifies me. And you see, it's an amazing fear that draws us near and calls us to be like Him. It's it's God. And we are to approach Him with confidence because He has made the way open to us. And imagine the most frightening circumstance in your life. Thunder, rain, earthquake, whatever it is, and God's saying, I've given you safe passage into it. Well, God is greater and more awesome than whatever that is. And He's granted you safe passage, to be a part of His kingdom. We've received the kingdom that won't be shaken. We need to be thankful. Amen. We, we need to be thankful. We've been included into His kingdom. Oh my gosh, be thankful. And worship God with reverence and awe. Recognizing who He is, that He is indeed a consuming fire. We're going to stop there. Uh, and finish chapter 13 next week, and again, have communion together, acknowledging Christ as being central part of this whole book of Hebrews. Um, Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for the pictures that are given just in this chapter, Father, of how awesome you are, how tremendous you are, how holy you are. And Father, there are such practical things that we need to deal with, like bitterness or sexual immorality godlessness and father there are such profound things that we need to recognize your righteousness your holiness father the work that you've done that speaks better more clearly lord the new covenant that we are a part of that we get to enjoy that we are partakers of lord father to recognize in our own lives what things need to be shaken and what things will fall and what things we are holding on too tightly to and what things we're not holding on to tight enough. Father, work those things out in our lives. Lord, as we come before you and recognize that you are consuming fire, God, you will burn away those things that will not last and you will bring to bear those things that will. And Father, we each need to find out what those things are in our lives. Father, there are areas that we need to step into and rise up to em- embrace, Lord. And there are things that we need to let go. And Lord, you you will show us those things because you're good. You are faithful and you are at work within our lives again. I just thank you for this time, Lord, and these these things that we get to look over and talk over. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.